from RTE News. Welcome to Core Values. I'm Carla O'Brien and after a year that has changed how we live, this is the show that takes a look at what we really value. I'll speak to people in Irish public life about what parts of their lives are now most important. The companionship that I have with him, it allows everything and it has provided this wonderful cloak of warmth and love and protection. My guest today is the EU Ombudsman Emily O'Reilly. Prior to taking up her current role, Emily had been Ireland's first female Ombudsman and Information Commissioner. The mother of five is an author and a former journalist. I was looking at my high, high heels the other day on the floor in the bedroom and I was thinking, how in God's name am I going to walk in those again? Emily O'Reilly, how am I finding you today? Um, uh, very good, very good. I'm here in, in, in Strasbourg uh, with my husband. We've been here continuously since last September um, and I've been working away. It's, it's amazing how much work can continue to happen once you have your computer and the various platforms and so on. Uh, so yeah, today's a good day. It's not as sunny as it has been, but uh, Strasbourg is a beautiful city, whether it's, it's raining or snowing or whether the sun is shining on it. What do you value today? Well, I suppose this morning is a very small thing, but I value the fact that we actually remembered to buy the milk um, yesterday evening. So we had some for our tea this morning. And it struck me that, you know, a lot of the, the small rituals that we kind of took for granted before, they've taken on a much more important and ritualistic quality to them, if you like, because, because we are without, shall I say, so many of the other experiences in our day that, that make it so busy. And it's the smaller moments that, you know, take on a particular quality, like, you know, the first cup of tea in the morning or coffee at some point, or when every other distraction is taken away, uh, you're forced to, I suppose, experience those that, that are left much more intensely. That might be an over elaborate way of saying I enjoyed my cup of tea this morning, but I think what I'm just trying to reflect is that when people come to me about what they enjoy more, which they have found greater enjoyment in, it's always, always the small things. Absolutely. And what you're saying about the purity that those small rituals can take on, I mean, we're all hypersensitive to the smaller things and how much nicer they are. We absolutely are, you know, um, while there's the, the expression, you know, what is seldom is, is, is wonderful. You know, if, if you're going out to dinner every night or seeing movies or doing whatever it is you do, that in a way becomes commonplace. But when you have access to them rarely or you're anticipating access to them, then they um, acquire a, a value or a purity or delight in the experience far greater than it would have been, it's all relative. I mean, probably you and I get more of a kick out of you know, buying new clothes than the Kardashians would, you know. And you were mentioning there that, that your husband is with you. Are any of your children with you? No, um, actually the coincidence of the, the pandemic was that it kind of coincided with, with the first real empty nest experience we were, we were going to have. So our eldest child turned 30 last year, which I think was most unfair of her since it made me feel very old. <laughs> um, but we celebrated it anyway. And our youngest child uh, turned 21. Uh, so I have one child in Canada, one in uh, the States, and then three in different places in, in Dublin. So uh, we were experiencing 
the empty nest uh, for the first time. And of course, we were physically and geographically away from them as well. So like for the first time in 30 years, we were really on, on our own. It was like we experienced three decades of, you know, the madness and drama and whatever wonderfulness of, of child rearing and adolescent rearing, not quite as wonderful. And now we were kind of like, oh, gosh, here we are, you know, looking at each other. And I suppose what has been lovely is finding that we actually still quite like each other. And yeah, it's not that we don't have the odd screaming match, as our neighbours might testify, but in general, we have, I suppose, really enjoyed each other's company, um, even in the absence of our fabulous children. Um, and of course, you know, you're never away from your children. I mean, it's, it's you know, there's Zoom, there's Skype, there's FaceTime, there's everything. I mean, our eldest daughter got engaged um, last October oh, and, uh, in Vancouver, and the way and it was very sweet, actually, because her, her husband-to-be, his fiancé, as I can now call him, had actually rung us a few weeks before that and asked for her hand in marriage, um, you know, Stephen and me, separately. And that was emotional. But then, uh, anyway, he surprised her with the engagement and they were up the hill walking in, in Vancouver. They had it all, or Andrew had it all arranged, so he had a friend video the his proposal to her down on one knee and giving her the beautiful ring and, and Jessie's the look on her face was just incredible and then they both nearly fell off the hill um <laughs> I was very glad I was seeing the moment afterwards but there was something particularly special about seeing it that way because of the pandemic I suppose they were forced to do it away and and video it to have that to have that memory and to share that memory so that was really lovely Wow, that sounds so special. I have goosebumps here and you're telling that story. What's your most valued possession? My most valued possession? Um, I do not want to call my husband a possession, but <laughs> I think, uh, sorry, sweetheart, but um, the companionship that I have with him beyond anything else is, yeah, definitely my most valued um, uh, possession uh, because it is... It allows everything, you know. Uh, it has allowed me and him not to be lonely during this uh, period. It has allowed us to share everything with the children, the ups and the downs. Uh, it has allowed me to continue to work, uh, knowing that other things were being taken care of. And, and it has provided this wonderful, what I call it, I don't know, cloak of warmth and love and protection and everything. Uh, and and I, I feel that so acutely now. I remember a few years ago, you know, because the children were still in school and college and all of that, and Stephen wasn't spending that much time with me, and I was on my own. And even though I'm very good on my own and read and write and do lots of things, I really struggled for a period because you're left far too much with your with your own thoughts. You know, everybody can point to a particular sadness, a particular kind of pandemic you know, issue, whether it's you know having to care for a very elderly parents, whether it's looking after small children, whether it's having a child in the middle of a pandemic, you know, everybody has a particular burden. But I think the burden of that loneliness uh, is is particularly uh, acute. And I think that is perhaps made me value even more um, that companionship that I share with my husband. Wow. I, I'm finding myself really just really warmed by your relationship with, with your husband. It's really wonderful that you speak so lovingly about him. Um, after you know many years of marriage and and children, because I think certainly a lot of the experience of families during the last year has been a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. 
Yes, ab- absolutely. And and uh, in my in my office, well, like I feel like the the matriarch uh, giving advice on you know everything from yes, do get an epidural to uh, you know, <laughs> how to how to deal with a three year old. Um, all of that, and I mean, Stephen and I do reflect on what it might have been like if this happened, you know, ten years ago, when the children were were all at home, and you're trying to wrestle with the physical demands of 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 parenting. But even you know, much more challenging are the the emotional demands when they start getting a bit older. While I miss, really miss that that time with with the children. I mean, if the pandemic could have happened. At, a good period in our lives this this was this was not the worst you know absolutely and i suppose with with that in mind over the past year has there been a part of your life that is worth a lot less to you in terms of its value what part of your life may have lost its value so to speak well to be absolutely flippant i i think you know wearing high heels and and i know this has become a cliche of the pandemic but you know i, I look at i was looking at my high high heels the other day on the floor in the bedroom and i was thinking how in god's name am i going to walk in those again <laughs> no i mean i think you you think of the vast amount of time you waste either traveling around the place or faffing about the place you know and, and you think actually all of our work lives could be significantly reduced what part of your life has retained its value? I think my my work life has has retained its value. Um, you know, work is very important. I'm one of these people who hates the expression work life balance uh, because we all spend so much of our lives at work. It is it is our life. I mean, at the beginning uh, of the of the pandemic back in March of uh, last year. Uh, and everybody fled home. Um, I was concerned because I did complaints against the EU administration, and I was concerned that uh, the, the the work was not going to be as uh, you know as intense. So we wouldn't have as much to do. You know how were things going to play out? Uh, and and in fact, they they played out really well. I mean, we we get the same number of of, of complaints. We've done a number of quite important investigations. We went into the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control. We've looked at how you know the administrations have handled their work in terms of their transparency and honesty, I guess. Um, and so it was very important to me at the beginning that we would make a contribution to sorting out the pandemic insofar as we can and for me that was to keep an eye on the decision making um in the administration and to make sure that that people knew what was going on because it was my experience as irish ombudsman during the financial crash that people can cope with a lot of things as long as they're told the truth because if they feel they're not being told the truth about something that's when that seriously um, uh, elevates people's stress levels and therefore it's always been a, a thing you know with me that administrations have to be honest and open with people so certainly my, my work has not lost value and it was really important to me that this year would be meaningful for for the office and that we would be able to contribute in whatever way we can to emerging from this and to having an even better administration once the pandemic ends. Coming from your background as a journalist, has has transparency, truth, fairness, honesty, have they always been core values to you as such that you've always had in life? Well, I think it's always very difficult. Um, <laughs> one must always be very careful about talking 
about one's values because you can either come across, you know, as a saint or a hypocrite. And um, I'd like to think I was I was neither. But I think in terms of um, my observation of of administrations over many years, both as a, as a political correspondent and, and as ombudsman, what I now really profoundly believe is, is that, first of all, governments have to know that their primary overriding concern and duty is to protect their citizens, nothing else. And one of the ways in which they do that is being honest and open with them to let them know what's happening. And I think it is particularly important in during the pandemic i mean trust is so vital i mean we see it in terms of you know vaccine uptake we see it in terms of uh, people agreeing to abide by quarantine or, or, or other rules they only do that if they trust what the government is telling them um, because if they don't then all of that will break down so it's not just this nice abstract nerdy concept of trust or transparency or anything like that it actually has a real concrete rationale and real concrete outcomes and just coming back to what you were saying about making a contribution and whether it be in your personal life or your professional life how important to you has it been to know that you are making a contribution Hugely important. I mean, I think everybody has a different balance uh, in their lives as to what they want to prioritize. And and I mean, it's not even a choice. Sometimes it's it's simply the way you are. So sometimes work is something that, okay, they might enjoy or might not enjoy, but it's basically a way of supporting that, that home and family life. You know, for me, it's 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 always been very different. I like to see the impact of, of my work on the world, uh, not out of ego, well, not just out of ego, I'm not denying I don't have an ego, but, you know, one likes to think that one spends very, very few precious years on, on this earth. And to me, it's important to me to know that the, the work I've done has made has made some, some small difference. But I mean, everybody has a different balance. I have to say, I've always also been incredibly fortunate in, in the work that I've done, um, because I was a journalist for 20 years, and that's, I loved Actually, every moment of it, it was such a privilege to be there. I mean, I now discover that, you know, the the, the reality of the cliche about journalists write the first draft of history. I mean, I, I feel ancient now because my daughters, you know, come to me and they found something or heard about something I wrote, God, you know, I don't know, 30 years ago. What to you at the time was just kind of the weekly work or the daily work and no big deal, you know, over time morphs into one small piece of the historical jigsaw. So so they all take, take an interest in that. But I think it also goes back as well to something because, of course, when the children grow up and you do, to a certain extent, reflect on your parenting, <laughs> your mothering and um you know, you think, well, did I spend enough time with them? Did I collect them often enough in school? You know, I think when, when they started noticing some of the things I'd done back in the dark ages, I kind of felt, well, that's something I have given to them through my work. And that is something that they can feel good about because, you know, they're, they were proud of me or proud of me having done that. And, and they, they found it to whatever extent capable of influencing their own lives. Uh, and that that is lovely. So it basically gets rid of the guilt. I think we all need a wee bit of something to get rid of the guilt. I know exactly what you're saying. And I know that you said about work-life balance and you're not fond of that phrase. But how, how did you do it all? Journalism was useful and that was very flexible. 
uh, obviously. So I was not stuck in a nine to five job with a certain amount of time off and all of that. And I had wonderful employers that they didn't care where I worked as long as I produced stuff. So I could be literally breastfeeding a child and writing column. I don't know whether they were my best ones or my worst ones, but anyway, uh, also had you know, choose your partner wisely. Stephen was always very uh, supportive of me. Um, and also I had wonderful childminders who loved them very much. Uh, and so I never felt that I was leaving them in, in a place where they would not be loved. And um, yeah, just did it. I mean, you had to forget doing anything else. You know, I mean, life was just not just, <laughs> but it was it was working home, working home. I mean, and shopping um, for groceries. Um, I mean, there were no hobbies. There was nothing else during that that period. And now that the, that the children are grown up, do you, are you involved in hobbies at the moment? Well, actually, one of the things I think when I, when I was in school, it might have been the same for you. But I think children tend to get boxed in very quickly. So I was, you know, reasonably clever. Uh, so you'd have the clever ones, you'd have the sporty ones, you'd have the artistic ones, you'd have all of that. And you never felt as if you could kind of move outside your box, you know. So if there was a, if there was another skill that I would have liked, it was that it was to be an artist. I mean, I just uh, to me, that is a magical uh, thing. So anyway, nothing happened. And whenever I did try it, I was absolutely useless at it. So uh, in the summer of 2019, I was preparing for my re-election campaign uh, before the European Parliament, the European officer. And so scary time, uh, very unsettling. So I had to kind of calm myself emotionally. So I took myself off to the wonderful Burren College of Art uh, for a week, uh, botanical art classes. And I was just beyond useless. I actually slunk off two days before it ended. I was so embarrassed uh, by it. So anyway, the pandemic hits and I thought, well, look, give it a go. So anyway, over the last year or so, I have been working on that, doing, uh, you know, online uh, online course and working at it and, and actually forcing myself to slow down because as a former journalist, you know, I rush, 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 rush. But if you're doing botanical art, you have to be really slow and, and sort of take your time. And you do not think about anything else when you're doing this. Uh, and that has been that has been lovely. And actually, what's interesting as well, you're talking about what I'm sure there'll be like we'll be talking about this pandemic for the rest of our lives, I guess. But I suppose the artistic response to it and because I, I've always been drawn to botanical art, I just like beautiful pictures of flowers. OK, but there's a sense when I read about it, that's a bit twee, it's kind of cliched, you kind of feel oh, maybe I should be doing something a little more edgy. But anyway, I like it. But recently, two of the world's most famous artists, David Hockney and Damien Hirst, they've been busy during their lockdown as well. And what have they been painting? They've been painting flowers and trees. <laughs> and their response to this pandemic was to find beauty in in really exquisitely beautiful and ordinary things, you know, perhaps after this, because Hockney and Hearst's work will be selling for the multi-millions, I've no doubt, there will be a, a reawakening, a reassessment of botanical art, and I'll get in there somehow. <laughs> what aspect of your life has gained value over the last year that you think? I, I think possibly without sounding too precious about it. It was my interior life, if you like. I mean, I I kind of, I rediscovered my sense of myself really as an introvert. I, I know that sounds, that can be surprising to people, but I think I always was and am. You know, what has been incredible in this is, in this period for me, is the, the space it has provided inside your head to think, 
to read, to explore, to let things settle. One of my, I won't say it's a guilty pleasure, but one of the lovely things that pops into the letterbox every now and then is, uh, is the London Review of Books. Incredible, beautifully crafted essays and crafted over weeks and months. I mean, not just dashed off over a weekend that really stretch your brain and really stretch your prejudices as well or have you explore them. And that has been something that I have welcomed in this time. As I said, that interior life and fed by publications like that and, and by certain audiobooks and and just just my own thoughts, I guess, really. You were saying there that you would class yourself as an introvert. Is that something that you have learned in recent times or is that something that you have always been aware of? When I became a journalist first and I was working as an intern in Woman's Way magazine, which um, you may not remember, but it was a very popular Irish women's magazine. And I was so shy about interviewing anybody that I would go outside to the phone box and the street to make the calls because I was too embarrassed to other people listening to me. Now, that passed rather quickly, but I would always have been, you know, yeah, as a child, I was incredibly shy very, very shy, but also really curious about the world. I had to kind of find a way of, of bridging that divide between the shyness and not wanting to be engaged in the world with being incredibly intellectually interested. Uh, and, you know, that was that was a battle that I had with, with myself for many years. So, you know, I, I think everybody has their essential nature. What are you feeling hardcore about? So is there anything that you've grown more passionate about given the experience of the last year and a half? Okay, I think my work as an ombudsman and, and formerly as a political correspondent was always about analysing how political decisions are made. I mean, I, that's always fascinated me. That how, how, how do things happen? And I suppose in a way this has provided laboratory, almost literally conditions for the examination of, of, of political and, and other and other decisions. And um, something I looked into when we did an investigation of the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control, the issue of face masks. I mean, I looked back at my Amazon account and saw that I first ordered face masks on the 26th of February. And that was probably two months before the WHO and indeed Ireland, I will say, and um, the ECDC recommended their wearing. I could not see why one would not wear a face mask. I really couldn't. Also, the um, issue of that it was an aerosol-borne infection rather than one like the flu, which bigger droplets, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a, a doctor, but it seemed to me also obvious that it must be aerosol-borne because how else could people get infected so quickly? And yet, why did it take so long for, let's say, the WHO to officially recognise that it was aerosol-borne? That was important because... Uh, you know, there was a huge emphasis on hand washing and wiping down surfaces and all of that at the beginning. And yet, had the the fact that it was aerosol borne be more concretely accepted and, and expressed, then perhaps there would have been different advice in relation to ventilation, in relation to crowds, in relation to all of those things that would help to mitigate uh, an aerosol spread uh, infection. So if there's something I'm hardcore about, it's why did that happen? Why was there a reluctance to uh, recommend face masks. I can understand that there there may have been well a concern, understandable concern about depriving uh, medical personnel of them, but in relation to the aerosol-based things. So now when you look back at some of the statements that were made in the early weeks and months of the pandemic by 
people who were in a position to know. They looked bizarre, given that, you know, after a few months, it was became universally accepted. What raises your core temperature? So what has been making you angry? It can be specifically related to the pandemic or more in general. I think what has impressed itself upon me was the extent to which um, straightforward decisions in relation to public health uh, are so influenced by politics and by culture. China did such and such a thing. Typically, a lot of countries in, in the Far East who had experience of SARS and other infections like that closed down very quickly. And because culturally, uh, their people were used to a certain kind of quite strict uh, administrative practices. In the West, it was different. In Britain, you had Boris Johnson boasting about the fact that he was shaking hands with people who almost certainly had COVID. I mean, that to me, I mean, I won't describe how angry that made me feel that a man of his intelligence and his position should do that was, to me, extraordinary. Um, and then you had Trump, and we all know the way he went on it. And then you had Bolsonaro in in uh, in, in Brazil, uh, Modi in India, various men uh, who saw it almost as a mark of their manhood that they should deny the epidemic or play it down or keep things open. And it really interested me the degree to which what one would have considered straightforward decisions about how to deal with this, because the virus was the same everywhere. Those decisions, which were life and death, were being decided by the stripe of one's creed, politics, culture, and so on. That does make me even personally angry, you know, when when I see how political and other decisions that were made impacted so directly on the trajectory of this virus. As I say, that it was the virus that was the killer, but it was political and administrative decisions that determined a lot of its trajectory. And I think that is something that into the future we all nearly, really need to reflect upon. Unfortunately, certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw what society had been giving value to before it happened. And certainly we had not been given value to our older people and certainly our older people in nursing homes, because you are aware of the appalling figures in relation to deaths in nursing homes, not just in Ireland. In a way, it exposed the deficits in our care. So, you know, and you saw this wasn't just a reflection of the pandemic. This is a reflection of how we were as a society, because if we got it right before the pandemic, then possibly we could have got it right during the pandemic. And again, those are lessons, I think, for post-pandemic land. Over the last year, who has been your MVP, your most valuable player? The person or the people that over the last year have really shown themselves to be so valuable to you? The family WhatsApp group thing has been uh, a real support uh, because at all hours of the day and night you can get in stuff that's you know either funny heartwarming annoying whatever but it it's that that link with all of those people all of those individuals all of my children that has uh, been enormously uh, supportive and also some of my colleagues in work uh, my my, my right hand man uh, who runs the cabinet and and just has managed that this period so well for me. Yeah, Aidan has been uh, one of the, one of those people. Uh, my 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 best pal at home, uh, Maria, who 
I met when she'd had her third child, I'd had my first, and we both met in the waiting room for our six weeks checkup. And 31 years later, we were still great pals. We both have five children. So, you know, we've been a great comfort to each other, not just in the pandemic. Yeah, so, you know, the family, my work colleagues and and, uh, and Maria and my, and my book club, my wonderful book club. Uh, so, yeah, they've been, they've been my tonic uh, really during all of this. Absolutely. And just what you're saying about a shared experience, what we've all experienced this year obviously has been shared, you know, nationally, globally within your family. How do you think this may bring us as a society closer together, if at all? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, that's a really good point that you make. I notice even in work, colleagues have said that they've actually talked to each other uh, more um, and and met with people and got to know people more during this period. And, and I think because we all needed to reach out and because there is comfort in, in even those small communications, I love the weekend edition of the Financial Times and there's a little a news agent around the corner and the gentleman puts it aside for me and we have a little chat in French and, you know, it's nice. So that's this sort of small punctuation point in the day. I mean, I don't even know his name. He doesn't know mine, but there's this kind of little, little nice connection. And I think because we have been starved of the bigger, more numerous connections, we value those small little pinpricks of you know, of, of, of connecting um, when we get them. And I think it's not just communication with the people we know intimately, but it's also that reaching out to the people in, the, in our wider community that generally we may not take much notice of, or they of us, but because every communication uh, attained a much higher value, then I would hope that that is uh, retained. So I'm going to finish up now with our final question. Emily O'Reilly, what is your core value? I think um, I have to say my sense of myself as as a mother, really. I think when everything else is, is swept away, whether it's, it's, it's my career or the external world, I mean, I think that is something that goes to to my fundamental value and not not it's not so much as that I put myself forward as, as a fabulous mother and I'm sure my children will testify to that but it's the sense that that has to be the most important thing um, in my life and how I think I will ultimately uh, judge myself um, and I think what I do and have valued in my children as they have reached adulthood uh, is that uh, I have a lovely relationship with each of them. It's not that we don't fall out, we don't, you know, um, have rows, but there is an openness and a communication there, and and that I that I feel proud of. When everything is is strapped away from the from the high heels to everything else, I mean, I think that will be the most important um, uh, part of me. A huge thank you to Emily for sharing her core values and thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, rate and review.